Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9. If you are visiting with us today, maybe clicked on a link on YouTube or Facebook, and you don't have a Bible, just message me. I would love to send you a Bible so you could have God's Word in your own home, in your own hands, that by His grace it might dwell richly in your heart. Zechariah chapter 9, starting with verse 9. This is God's Word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young woman. This is God's word. Would you pray with me as we ask his blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord, we want to see your beauty and believe the transforming truths of the gospel. Maybe some of us for the first time today, maybe some of us for a thousand times needing to believe afresh and anew because our hearts this week have grown tired and cold and hard. And so speak to us, our great King, by your word, so that by the power of the resurrection, through your Holy Spirit, we may breathe fresh life. We pray this in your name. Amen. One of the things that times like this reveals to us is that we can't fight our own battles. A virus from another part of the world that was mutated, unseen by any human eye from a bat to a human was completely unnoticed and turned the world upside down. If a threat that small can cause this type of chaos 
we feel our vulnerabilities, don't we? We fight and we lose. One of the things that battles like this reveal is that we can't fight our own battles. And then I've had this experience, and I wonder if you've too, that the battle without, with the coronavirus and the circumstances that we find ourselves in with shutdowns and isolation has only revealed a sea of darkness in my own heart. Irritability, restlessness, contentment just seems so elusive, and I am powerless to change my own heart. In fact, I'm fine. I'm as powerless to change my own heart as I am to end a global pandemic. We have been unable to do anything with our mind or our hands to push back both the curse of sin that has corrupted the created order around us or corrupted our own hearts. And what it has revealed is that we don't need a system, a life philosophy, new technology, government intervention. What we need is a person, a king, who will conquer all of the places that the curse of sin has broken and against which we feel so helpless. A king to free us where we're held captive, a king with a kingdom where we can thrive. This is what is being announced in Zechariah chapter 9, actually 9 through 11, this bookend of these three chapters. And if you just have the worship guide in front of you, you might want to pull out your Bible because we're going to flip around in these three chapters, primarily 9 and 10 today. But here is what is being announced to Israel. God the King is returning to his people Israel. And it will lead to two outcomes, judgment and salvation. Israel at this time was oppressed and an occupied people whose city had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Their capital city lay in ruins. Their temple that was a symbol of God's redeeming presence in their midst was just being rebuilt. A people whose way of life had been seriously interrupted, not for a few weeks, but for 70 long years. And Zechariah 9 through 11 is one of the last two sections of Zechariah. 9 through 11 form one oracle. 12 through 14 that we'll look at next week form a second oracle. And an oracle is just simply a word of judgment. In fact, some translations might read, Um, Instead of oracle, a burden, the burden of the word of the Lord in in verse 1, which will get repeated again in chapter 12, verse 1. God is bringing through Zechariah an oracle of judgment. In fact, the first eight chapters of Zechariah are visions, night visions, that are meant to address the contemporary issues that Israel is facing to bring hope into their circumstances. God's pulling back the curtain in these night visions in the first eight chapters and saying, this is what I'm up to right now. Starting in verse one of chapter nine, going through the end of the book, God is pulling back the curtains and saying, this is what I will be up to going forward. 
And so three points today is God is speaking hope to his oppressed people. Three points today. First, the divine warrior arrives. Second, he arrives as a humble king. And then third, to bring rest and deliverance to his people. A divine warrior arrives as a humble king to bring rest and deliverance to his people. So the divine warrior arrives. That's what's being announced in these passages. Perhaps you picked up on the language as we read in Zechariah 9, starting with verse 9 of a warrior arriving on a war horse and um, from Jerusalem and the battle bow is going to be cut off and pieces going to be gone and strongholds are being opened. It's what happens when God shows up. God shows up. He always shows up to judge and to save, or maybe to put it another way, when he shows up, he brings salvation through judgment. And so in verse 1 of chapter 9, the arriving warrior king will bring judgment on the enemies of Israel. So verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9 is really a catalog of the nations that immediately surround Israel and were a perpetual source of nuisance at best and oppression at worst. And see, what's being happening is God's announcing judgment on those because this is what he does. He brings salvation through judgment in that great redemptive event of the Old Testament, the Exodus. Israel is saved because God shows up to fight their battles and to liberate an enslaved people from Egypt, but he does so through judgment. In fact, a series of judgments and judges the Egyptians through a series of plagues. And in almost every single one of those, God's people, Israel, is spared, including the ultimate plague of death, where the Israelites are saved from God's judgment on the firstborn by placing blood above their doorposts. And then Egypt chases them down through the desert. And, and when they reach the Red Sea, God parts the waters and his people go through the waters of judgment safely on dry ground. And then he brings the judgment of the waters on the Egyptians and the oppressors of God's people are judged and destroyed. Salvation through judgment. That is God the warrior doing his work. He is destroying his people's enemies and saving his people. That is the basic structure of chapters 9 and 10. In the passage that I read earlier, the divine king is arriving in Jerusalem. And as a result, in verse 14, this is what's said. The Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts, that's a military title, host children, just simply means army. The Lord who is a commander of armies who fights for his people will protect them. And as a result, going back to verse 1, the Lord is against Hadrach, 
and Damascus. This is the area to the northeast of Israel who frequently made war with God's people. And then he works his way west to and then south, surrounding nations, Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean coast. Though she is very wise, verse 4, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea and she will be devoured by fire. Incidentally, this actually happened when Alexander the Great took power, took um, over and defeated Tyre, which was considered to be a place of refuge that no one could get to. God judged them, and they were brought low. And as a result of bringing judgment on his people's enemies, verse 8, this is what happens. I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor, oppressor shall again March over them, for now I see with my own eyes. And then verse 16, on that day, their Lord, their God will save them as a flock of his own people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Now, if you've grown up around the Bible, you may have recognized verse 9 of chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Both the gospel writers of Matthew that was read earlier by Mark. Wasn't it good to see him this morning? And then John, the gospel writer, Quote it when Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the last time on Sunday, the Sunday that we call Palm Sunday. In fact, Matthew takes these chapters of Zechariah 9 through 11 as the outline for what is happening when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. His entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is the arrival of the divine warrior to establish God's kingdom by salvation through judgment. Now, you would expect from this initial description of the king's victory here in Zechariah that when Zechariah describes the king, he would come riding on the clouds with chariots of fire and trumpet bass and legions of angels displaying the power that would be unmatched and unstoppable that he would deliver his people and judge the nations. But again, verse 9. This is a humble warrior king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now it's an it's not completely unusual for a king to ride on a donkey. King David rode on a donkey when he re-entered Jerusalem after Absalom was defeated. But the king only rode on a donkey during times of peace, and they were never on such a young donkey, on a colt full of a donkey, a, a one-year-old animal, because it's so small and weak. You see what God is saying is that when my king arrives, that king is humble and meek. 
And that is the upside down nature of God's kingdom. Where the rulers of this world gain power by shows of strength, Jesus comes in true display of power because he is lowly. And he is lowly and meek because he identifies with the captive and the oppressed. He identifies with the meek who need their battles fought for them because they have no strength of their own. Great conquering kings during this time often rode in on great stallions or large beasts. Children think of the latest Aladdin movie. When Aladdin rides in to impress Princess Jasmine, he's riding on an elephant, the largest animal that he could find. And you see, the kings of the earth have to find ways to intimidate people with their displays of power because they are compensating for their true weakness. But God's king comes in the strength of God's true power, and so he rides in humility because that is what the most flourishing person looks like, not one who has pomp in circumstance, but who is so secured in ultimate power that they're freed to be humble and meek. But let's be honest, trust is difficult for us because we intuitively know what people are capable of. We've experienced it. They'll turn on us. They say one thing, mean another. They use deception they instead of serve us use us to get forward in our lives the historian lord acton's wisdom has played out over time when he said power corrupts but absolute power corrupts absolutely and then he adds as a throw-off line maybe one of the best throw-off lines in the history of the world great men are almost always bad men But verse 9, God's king is righteous. He is a king, all of God's law, a king that can be trusted, who always acts with integrity. Because God's law was always Jesus's delight. He is worthy of our trust and allegiance. He's proven what he does with power. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. He meets with the tax collectors who were cast off by society. He moves towards the unrepentant woman at the well and transforms her when no one else would even speak to her. He sits the weak at his table and feasts with them because the law of the Lord is his delight. The man who is Righteous tries to preserve peace and prosperity of the community by fulfilling the commands of God in regards to another. That's what one author says. That he's righteous means he seeks the health and the well-being of those around them because the law of the Lord is his delight. He has integrity and stability and trustworthiness. Secondly, he comes having salvation, righteous, and having salvation. To an ancient Israelite, salvation didn't mean a ticket to heaven one day. 
Salvation was so much bigger than that. It meant deliverance from your enemies and then entrance into peace. And I want us to catch this. Jesus' meekness, his righteousness, and having salvation all come together at the cross. When John picks up Zechariah 9 in John chapter 12, he quotes this passage announcing Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem and then immediately begins to record Jesus' march to this death on the cross as his kingly ambition. It's the pivotal passage in John's gospel. The whole hinge of John's gospel hangs on this. Everything turns towards the cross when Jesus announced that it was time for the Son of Man. By the way, that's divine warrior language from Daniel. The Son of Man is to be glorified. He's talking about his death on the cross. As the righteous king, he knew that God's law required death for any who broke his commands, even in the smallest way. There was always, always judgment on the horizon because he, righteous, delighted in God's law. So there was no way around the judgment of God. So the meek, righteous king must establish his kingdom, and bring salvation by bearing our judgment on the cross. And thus, he's glorified as the Son of Man, the divine warrior. So the judgment of God falls on the head of the king at the cross where Jesus was crucified, and the Lord turned against his own son in judgment, or maybe to put it into this context, Jesus became the ungodly nations so that the ungodly nations, like us, could become sons of God. Listen to this quote about Jesus from a great warrior. He says, Alexander, Caesar, and Hannibal conquered the world, but they had no friends. Jesus founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions would die for him. He has won the hearts of men, a task a conqueror cannot do. You know who said that? Napoleon Bonaparte. You can hear the longing, the bewilderment in his observation. He might have control over Europe, but he has no empire because he has no people who love him. Jesus, on the other hand, has people who are his empire because he conquered them by being judged in our place. He is our king who passed through our judgment and brought us into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And as a result, our third point, he brings rest and deliverance for his people. See, the result of salvation through judgment will be rest from their enemies. When the divine warrior shows up here in Zechariah 9 through 11, he arrives bringing salvation through judgment and his people experience, as a result, three 
different things, three things that were once lacking before that are now present now. As a result of the divine warrior arriving to fight for his people, to fight their battles, to defeat their enemies and bring rest, verse 10, that's our first one. He brings shalom. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Their battle will be over and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the end of the earth. It's to be a kingdom of peace. And that word peace that's used in verse 10, it's the word shalom. And it means so much more than just the the ending of conflict. It is when everything is flourishing because it is rightly related to God and rightly related to everything else. It is the sense that things are right forever. So the king brings shalom. He defeats the enemies and establishes a kingdom of flourishing. As a result, he also brings liberation, verse 11 and 12. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return, O stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you. That waterless pit is a vision of a place that is absolutely hopeless, a pit that has no water, something you can't get out of, and there's no provision for you there. And as a result, those prisoners will become prisoners of hope because they're brought into his strong. He'll set his people free. Shalom, liberation, verse 1 of chapter 10, provision. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field, those who are destitute. The Lord has an abundance. Imagine that going forward. Maybe you've lost your job and you wonder where, what's going to happen. Remember, the Lord has an abundance. He makes the storm clouds ask for rain and he will give out of his abundance to his people the provision that we need. So here's what the divine warrior brings for his people. Shalom, liberation, and provision. And so this is what I want us to do for the remaining part of our time. I want us to give, I want to give us four steps for accessing the divine warrior's salvation. His deliverance from enemies and establishing a kingdom of peace. So step number one. Bend your knee to the king. Verse 11 and 12. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope today. I declare that to you double. See, the promise of the king is that when he ascends victoriously after defeating his enemies, he will set prisoners free from the waterless pit and make them hope. It's a profound description of our own inability to push back the curse of sin, either in creation as it is in chaos right now and experiencing the curse and the coronavirus or the sin of our own hearts. We have found life to be a waterless pit, and so we need the king to 
deliver us. You need a savior to deliver you from your own sin's power. So entrust yourself to Jesus. Maybe you've never done this before. Bend your knee to the king. Lay down your sword of rebellion now. Stop trying to live your own life by your own power and for your own ends. Put down your sword and bend your knee to the king because if you don't, he will defeat you on the day of judgment that is coming. You see, the first time he rode in on a donkey to serve, but when he returns, it will be on a white stallion to bring the final judgment and it will be unstoppable. But now, today, you will find the divine warrior to be full of mercy and willing to freely take you into his kingdom of flourishing. So bend your knee to the king. Secondly, reframe the war. See, if we target the wrong enemy, we'll not experience the power of this warrior king. We want to fight what he's fighting. And he is waging a war against sin and Satan. So listen to the way Peter frames the fight against sin in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, right, those who are those who belong to Jesus Christ and had the love of God on you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so Peter, he's employing battle language, war language, but the war is with our sinful desires, not with my spouse or my children or my circumstances or my lack or my abundance, but with my own heart. The want-tos of my heart are disordered. All of my desires are disordered. There is no desire in me that is not disordered, and they are waging war against my soul because they are disordered against God and his righteous ways of peace. Paul says it this way. My disordered desires produce this, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Feel that war. The desires within me are so disordered that I can't do the things that I want to do. I can't do the right things. And when I don't want to do the right things, I, when I do want to do the right things, I see what God says, but I find myself doing evil instead. And so his conclusion is that he's being held captive to the power of sin that is waging war in him. And so then he cries out in Romans 7 verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Think of it this way. There is a past, present, and future to our salvation. Jesus, when we become a Christian, when we follow him, he delivers us from sin's reigning power. That's what it means to be born again or to become new creation, or to be given new life. He conquers sin's reigning power in our life, but then he begins to deliver us from sin's presence 
in my sanctification. This is what it means to, to belong to Jesus. He's fighting to deliver me from my disordered desires that wage war against me and against God. He continues to fight as my king. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do according to his pleasure. We, we fight because God's fighting first, and the divine warrior always wins his battles. And then future. He will return, and he will deliver me forever and ever from any remaining remnant of sin when he comes again. That's the story of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus conquered me in the past. I'm his. He's conquering my disordered, sinful desires in the present. And there's a future where this fight will end. And I will be at peace forever and ever and ever again. So reframe the fight. Thirdly, employ the king's sword. So in our fight against the power of sin, Ephesians 6, 17, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We see this in, in the book of Revelation when we get a picture and God there is pulling back the curtain too. Say, so let me see what's really, what is most true in the world. Jesus is on the throne as the Lamb who was slain, but he's also there as the divine warrior and he's fighting with a sword coming out of his mouth because it is the tool that he uses to defeat the disordered desires of sin. And it makes sense, right? Something so simple as the word of God is exactly what a humble king would use. He doesn't need great strategies or a bunch of hype. Rather, the king who rides a humble animal will fight his battle with humble means because through those humble means, he has all power and authority so that his people may experience glorious victory. So look at verse 2 of chapter 10 now. Because there's this contrast. The household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Contrast that with the king who speaks and with his word, he captures captives and brings them into his kingdom. The, the gods that we worship, the household gods, our idols, the things that we put our ultimate hope and trust in, those things, when they speak, they utter nonsense and are powerless. They give us false dreams and empty consolation. There is no hope in them. They deceive us by lying about their ability to bring satisfaction. They promise life, but end up giving empty consolation. They can no more satisfy the deep longings of your heart than gasoline can quench your thirst. But the king's power that spoke the world into existence and will never pass away can deliver us through such a humble mean that it is his sword that he does battle with remaining sin. So, bend the knee, reframe the war, employ the king's sword, and lastly, call in the king's power. John Piper has this great illustration of what prayer is and what prayer isn't. And he says it this way. 
Probably the number one reason that prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. The divine warrior sits enthroned in victory. He has defeated sin, Satan, and death. And so when you are in the trenches and the battle with your own heart and the temptation with the evil one overwhelm you and you see the fight completely taking you over, then pick up the wartime walkie-talkie and call in the firepower and the king will fight for you by his spirit. Reframe the fight. Employ the king's sword. Call in the king's power. And then as a result, chapter 10, verse 12. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in my name, declares the Lord. That is good news for the weak and vulnerable who cannot fight our own battles, but who has a Savior who has defeated sin and Satan at the cross and continues to fight for us with the power of the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Oh, how we need you. Every hour, we need you. For the battle a flesh and the devil are great, greater than the weakness of our hands, but not greater than your reign. And so we pray, put sin to death in us so that we could walk in newness of life. Maybe some for the very first time this morning, experiencing their hearts being conquered by your gracious love. But all of us, Lord, need to be strengthened and empowered so that we can fight. We can fight against sin and fight for your glory. And so we pray this in your name, our warrior king.